Hi, and welcome to our podcast series, Spotlight and Alternatives, where we look at some of the topical issues and trends across alternative investments. My name is Philip Murphy, and today's session is going to focus on tax. I'm delighted to be joined here today by Garrett Bryan, who's our Head of Asset Management Tax in KPMG in Ireland. Thanks for having me, Philip. Yeah, no problem. And, and maybe jump, jump straight in, right? Um, we've had lots of change over the last few years in the international tax landscape. Uh, I think that's apparent to all. I suppose from where you're sitting and your experience, what are you seeing as the kind of the key one or two things that's popping up across alternative investment structures from a tax perspective? Yes, yeah, so we've seen a lot of changes over the past number of years, some of which are driven by international changes at an OECD level, but also domestic law changes. And some of that may be a pushback against some of the globalization of the past number of decades and a desire to bring in more tax revenue from foreign investors. If we take, for example, interest limitation rules, which have been rolled out across the EU, but we see similar rules in lots of other jurisdictions where there's caps now on the ability to take interest deductions. Also moves to counteract mismatches between tax regimes in different jurisdictions, anti-hybrid rules, looking at hybrid entities and hybrid instruments, and trying to make sure that those mismatches are eliminated and tax is collected. We're also seeing changes around treaties and treaty access Some of that's again driven at an OECD level. We've had the multilateral instrument, the MLI, and we're now seeing tax authorities start to publish guidance and interpretations of how they think that those rules should be applied. But alongside that, we're seeing anti-avoidance rules being introduced by jurisdictions trying to deny treaty benefits in certain cases, and also interpretations of when treaties and treaty relief should be available. A good example that's relevant to alternatives, particularly in renewable energy space, is what counts as property and land because many countries will retain taxing rights over property in their jurisdiction or companies that derive a lot of value from uh, property in their jurisdiction. And does a wind farm, does a a solar farm, do they count as property or not for those purposes? And we're seeing some shifts now around what tax authorities think count as property and property rich companies in those contexts. So those are changes that, that we are seeing at an international level. Also seeing counteraction of payments to low tax and zero tax jurisdictions. That's happening at an EU level with the outbound payments directive, but we do see it in other jurisdictions as well. So there is a pushback there around the ability to push funds with the dividends, interest royalties to these offshore type jurisdictions. And that's probably going to affect fund structures and holding structures for for, uh, international investments across the globe, depending again on what jurisdictions are involved and what the local rules are. Mm, and do, do you think, so lots, lots of change there, do, do you think, is there certain asset classes or, or, or aspects where it just isn't going to be possible to do a kind of a zero tax or a low tax answer on an overall, overall effective basis with all these changes into, the, into consideration? Yeah, I think it's going to become much more difficult to have everything offshore. There would be some things, of course, that can, and it won't it will still be common enough to see a holding structure that might be in a zero tax or low tax jurisdiction. But underneath that, you're far more likely to end up with onshore entities in the investment jurisdictions, because without that, you're going to be potentially subject to penal taxation. And even then, there will be some jurisdictions where having any kind of zero tax or offshore entity in the ownership chain is going to potentially cause tax issues. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Kind of one of the, the trends that's starting to emerge is with alternative managers trying to move away from the closed-ended structure, right? And, and, and 
open it up to retail investors to have liquidity mechanism. But I think the, the closed end that is still far and away the most prevalent uh, and, and the kind of what's, what's the starting point for most. I mean, if I'm an alternative investment manager setting up a five, seven year fund with a, with a lockup and a, and a capital commitment type mechanism, I mean, how am I meant to predict or, or you know, what's the key things I need to be thinking about from a tax perspective uh, to, to make sure that I can model it out appropriately? Yeah, certainly you should not assume that what you've done in the past is going to be the correct approach for the future. Certainly if it's been anything more than two or three years since you've last implemented that structure. There's been so much change now, as I've mentioned some of it already around anti-hybrid rules, anti-hybrid instruments uh, and uh, entities now, those there are provisions to deny benefits in those cases. There's been a lot of changes that are also relevant depending on who your investors are. I touched on outbound payments. So now your structure could in fact start to attract withholding taxes or other tax uh, burdens, depending who the investor is, even something like Pillar 2 or the EU Minimum Tax Directive that seeks to ensure that structures are paying at least 15% tax. Depending on who your investors are, if they're in scope entities, in some cases they could bring your structure into scope, creating a tax burden within your structure by reference to the status of your investors. So I would certainly say do not assume that you can go with what was there last year or five years ago. You need to look at what, uh, not only how the laws have changed that are directly going to affect your vehicle in terms of uh, taxation of it at, at its own level, but also think about your investors and how their return may be impacted depending on local law. Certainly modelling is going to be very important for lots of these rules. So even some form of high level modelling out to exit with the exit plan clearly understood is something that you should be looking at. Yeah, I think that probably echoes something, some of the things we're seeing in practice, right, with different sensitivities being built into models and and indeed, I think that kind of the, the blank space thinking around what a fund structure looks like uh, is, is back on the table, right? We're going in and sitting in rooms with people kind of drawing boxes on pages and seeing, seeing if what they did before should be, should, should be replicated. M maybe looking out to, to the future, right? So we've had all these rules that are kind of on the horizon or, or, or that have been brought in. One thing that's kind of, I would say, looming large and has been for a while is the the third iterative of the EU Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, which kind of looks to penalise uh, entities with no or, or low substance, right? Uh, that the rules are still being, being formed. I mean, if I'm an alternative investment manager, do I need to be concerned about this or how relevant is it to me? I mean, it's potentially very relevant and I'm, you know, I'm an unabashed critic of this proposal. The rules that they propose on the face of it seem very obvious and straightforward. There are shell entities that don't have enough substance that are artificially getting tax benefits through treaties or through directives and something must be done. And then there's a bit of bait and switch as in, well, here is something, therefore we must do this. Uh, and the directive has been through the wars, I would say a lot of tax administrations looked at the shape of the original directive, saw that it was very unwieldy from their own point of view as to how they would administer it. And as a result, we've seen a lot of those provisions potentially dropped, amended, even gutted in some cases. But it's still out there and we do understand now that the Spanish presidency is going to try and push this with a view to trying to get agreement before the end of the year when their, uh, their role as president will end. There's still a long way to go. It would seem likely that something is going to be agreed, but precisely what the criteria will be before somebody is in scope, they have shifted. I still think they will be focused on uh, all forms of financial investment and return, which again, on the face of it, is not, in my view, an indicator of a misuse, but yet those are the criteria that are focused on. 
and the minimum substance criteria that would be proposed. Again, some of them are fairly nonsensical, but they seem to be sticking. Things like having a bank account in the EU. It's not clear to me why you know, an Irish company that goes to the other end of the EU, finds the smallest village they can that has a post office and bank account and opens a bank account there, why that is considered substantive while having a bank account in New York or London, some of the biggest financial centres in the world, is not. But nevertheless, these seem to be the criteria that are being put out there. Something is likely to come. It might be a lot less uh, invasive and detrimental as compared to the original proposals. But I'd have a concern that once it's in, it'll stick. It'll be a label that'll be there on tax residency certificates, and it'll be a status that might be picked up and used again in the future for future proposals on changes to tax law at an EU level. So I'm, I would be quite worried about it, uh, even if the changes that are brought in in the short term do not directly affect you. This could be a slippery slope. Yeah, and and the, the point on on short short term, what's your kind of your thoughts or prediction on when this is likely to be effective? It seems to be kind of stop start uh, and chugging along at, a, at, a, at an, a fairly odd pace. What what do you think on implementation? Yeah, uh, not before 2025. I, I would think in my own view in that if something is agreed, it'll be the end of this year. And I would say there'll be at least a year around implementation. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if tax administrations asked for longer. Many of them are still in the middle of trying to implement Pillar 2, the EU minimum tax directive. That's taking a lot of bandwidth as well as various other initiatives at an EU level. So a lot of those tax administrations are at breaking point in terms of their own resources. So I would say 2025 at the earliest, um, but even then that might get pushed. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Maybe get your thoughts on, on something else, maybe just to, to, to wrap up kind of hot off the press. And I, I mentioned for anyone who's listening, we're kind of recording this at the end of June uh, 23. We've just had a, a consultation document published by, by uh, by the Irish government, Department of Finance, around the Irish funds regime, right? And there's some tax stuff in there, there's some non-tax stuff in there. Uh, how relevant is that consultation to alternative investment managers? Oh, it's completely relevant. Anyone with Irish product, regulated and unregulated, should be paying attention to this consultation. Uh, for context, the consultation comes off the back of a review of the corporation tax regime that was done a couple of years ago, the Coffee Report. It looked at all aspects of the corporate income tax regime and as part of that, it said that it, there were a number of areas, niche areas that it didn't get time to look at, but thought possibly were due a proper review. One of those was around investment products, uh, and that's mostly domestic focused in terms of Irish investors in onshore funds, offshore funds, dirt products, uh, that's bank account products, and live products, and noting the myriad different rules that apply to each of them and whether or not those should be reviewed. And then separately, a focus on the Irish domestic property market and the use of REITs and Irish real estate funds in that space and the suggestion that really maybe it was time for those to be reviewed and maybe therefore funds more generally. And connected with that then, they said, well, Section 110 companies are used in the Irish property market too, therefore they should form part of that review. And if you're reviewing them in that context, why not review them generally? So that's what's come out in this review. It's a, it's a lengthy consultation document, about 60 pages with almost as many questions. And it's focused on a number of different areas. There's a piece on regulatory and legal structures and asking some general questions around there. There's questions around the place of the funds industry from an Irish uh, government point of view in terms of achieving its own strategic objectives, and also how Ireland can maintain its competitiveness in this space internationally. So good open questions and it appears to be an interest in trying to explore some of these issues. Tax specific things linked to, for there's areas looking at the 
taxation of investment products, including funds, but also other types of products are part of the review. That IREF, uh, the Irish Real Estate Fund and REIT, uh, Real Estate Investment Trust uh, sections are there as well with questions on those. And section 110 is in there, although unusually with only two fairly broad level questions around it, uh, but nevertheless is part of the review. There are questions in there around the funds regime generally as to whether it should be simplified and improved. And so I'd say if you are a stakeholder and you have an interest, you should read that consultation and either think about making your own submission or through any representative bodies that you're involved in, have your voice heard and make sure that your views are represented somehow. Yeah, I, I completely agree and I kind of would, would echo that. Like there's, I think one of the constant things, we piece of feedback we get from people to say, I want to do this as a class, but the product isn't quite right. There's small little pieces that need to be worked out. So I think there's there's plenty of positives there as well, and plenty of plenty of scope for for for, for stakeholders to to kind of make their make their voice heard uh, through the different channels. And um, I think we'll maybe finish on that uh, that positive note. I'd like to like to thank Garrett for his time today and his his insights. I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into this episode. If you have any questions on it, feel free to reach out to to me or indeed to your normal KPMG contact.